Where do you like to travel on vacation? Do you prefer the hustle and bustle of the city? Maybe do a little bit of bar hopping or take in a musical? How about traveling to a big sporting event or a concert with thousands of people in attendance? Well, you won't find Adonis Celestine there. No, no. He prefers a quieter, more secluded type of vacation. Yeah, I love traveling, mostly in the Europe. So I love islands, especially in places where there is low human impact, uh, where I don't see anybody. Uh, yeah, uh, Canary Islands is one of my favorite ones, especially because of the nature there. The entire island is like a volcanic uh, eruption. And when you are there, especially during off season, if you're there on a beach, you see like next to the beach, you see a huge pile of volcanic uh, mountains and then you get this surreal feeling of the power of nature. I love those places. Uh, I like to walk around it and spend some time uh, over there. Of course, even if you're seeking the solace of nature, it doesn't count as a vacation if you didn't take any photographs, pics, or it didn't happen. What it is if you don't have those social media likes next to you, <laughs> life is boring. I love mountains as well. Uh, so just uh, like uh, climbing, if you not a big climber I am, but uh, small mountains where we do a small uh, hike up and then uh, have a small picnic when we come down. Uh, so I do it with my family. So my wife also likes to walk. So we go around uh, during our holidays. Uh, I love uh, Croatia as well. Uh, they have a lot of small islands, unexplored islands. And some of them are really remote, uh, which you can get uh, on uh, with a boat, like maybe once or twice a day, when there's a boat service from the main island to a smaller one. Uh, so I love it. It's, it's an amazing place. I would recommend you to go there. I think Europe itself is quite beautiful. <laughs> For Adonis, these vacations offer a critical time to unplug, reduce the noise, and center himself. Not to mention, it's also a great way to avoid any emergency work calls. I work a lot during my day, work on several stuff, including projects, company, my personal stuff. I love to speak, I like to write. I spend a lot of time on that. Uh, I also play hard, so when it's vacation, I fly to shut out myself, uh, be away from the world. So these kind of vacations help me to kind of a reset button where I can, uh, after the holidays, I go back to work with a fresh mind, with some fresh uh, inspiration. This is the Ready, Test, Go podcast brought to you by Applause. I'm David Carty. Today, we're speaking with seclusion seeker and automation expert, Adonis Celestine. As the director of automation at Applause, Nothing satisfies Adonis more than a happy customer. As an advocate for test automation, he strives to make software testing easy yet innovative for brands all around the world. Adonis has written three books on digital quality, including his most recent, which he published in September, called Quality Engineering, The Missing Key to Digital CX. He also speaks at conferences throughout the EU, but right now he's speaking with me. All right, Adonis, let's start off with a broad strokes question. How do you define digital quality, especially as it relates to the customer experience? Yeah, for me, from my perspective, quality is really hard to define. It depends on who you ask. Like if you ask my uh, kid who like, likes to play Roblox, they know never, never care about quality. It's like it's in a game, like they're climbing stairs. And after like 10, 20 steps, there are no steps anymore and they don't care. It's just a feeling, the experience they get. That is what matters to them. Same in the business side as well. It depends on who you, who you ask. You ask a business guy, what is quality? 
It is all the requirements. They write it out. And if you ask a quality engineer what quality is, it's all about test cases that he has written down. But in the end, quality is a perspective. It cannot be properly defined. And that perspective can change uh, based on the experience of the user. And that's why I, I see quality and digital experience or something very similar to each other. Now, Adonis, the title of this episode is What Elevators Can Tell Us About CX. So, Adonis Celestine, what can elevators tell us about CX? I understand there's an example that points back to the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, that's indeed, because elevators have and quality and experience of something in common. Uh, during the Industrial Revolution, when uh, after the Industrial Revolution, when the passenger lifts were introduced, people were really afraid to take the lifts. Uh, they were feeling claustrophobic and they were complaining that the lifts were really slow and they are even better if they walk up the stairs, which is, which is much faster. So they did several things like bringing up the speed of the elevators, making it really fast uh, and usable, but still people didn't like it. And then a smart engineer came up with an idea. Uh, so what he did, instead of approaching it technically, what he put on some mirrors on the elevators. So the mirrors not only gave them a feeling that of there is more room uh, to avoid claustrophobia, but it also kept them occupied. So people were using it for all kinds of stuff like adjusting their hair, putting on makeup or lipstick. So they did not notice the passage of time, which gave them a feeling, okay, it is quite better. You can also see that same in your digital applications. You see this progress bar when you're uh, opening a web app or you see all these spinners. All these are like putting these mirrors on your elevators to make the customer feel that your application is faster and more efficient. So that's why for a digital experience, uh, these, it's not always about technical stuff, it's about managing this kind of stuff which brings up, elevates the experience of the user is very important. Now, if any elevator engineers happen to stumble upon this episode, might I suggest a mini bar or an espresso machine? That would be my next innovation. Just a suggestion. Yes. That one's for free. You can take that one. Uh, so I, I want to get back to something you said before, Adonis. Uh, so yeah. you, you were talking about uh, business requirements, user requirements. Uh, these yeah. typically define the test cases, right? Uh, so how far do these go toward actually addressing user needs and concerns? Yeah. It depends on uh, project to project. I have seen projects where you have these user requirements or so-called the business requirements, uh, which have been worked on for 12 months in an agile way. We develop something and then we go to the customer just to find out that there is actually no market for that product itself. So that's why it's very important to have some design thinking mindset where we first agree on an idea uh, make small prototypes, take it to the market, validate with the right customers and users, and then build on uh, top of it. So it's an iterative method with valid uh, user feedback. So that is where I see like a, a gap in the current uh, development methodology, where the user requirements or somebody's thought or someone higher up in the organization thought this is what the customer wants, which can be far from reality in some cases. 
Right. So it sounds like there are definitely some user-centric gaps there that really aren't covered by these user yeah. requirements and test cases. Can we drill down on that a little bit more? What other kinds of gaps do you see uh, in this kind of situation? Uh, I can give you an example of uh, a ketchup bottle, for example, from Heinz. So you have this upright bottle, uh, which is like a very nice uh, product. And you also have this uh, ketchup bottle with a down-facing uh, lid, which is more popular. If you look at the uh, market uh, analysis from Heinz, uh, the bottles with uh, opening at the bottom sold much more than the ketchup bottle with the lid on the top. Uh, so you see, you see two distinctive uh, designs here. One was more uh, product-centric, which was based on requirements, user requirements, based on functionality, tested probably on the test cases derived out of it. And the other one is more like what the actual user wants. While the ketchup is, uh, Heinz ketchup is a great product, if you have struggled to get it out of it, especially when it is cold, when it, when it is like only few ketchup left in the bottle, that is where the user-centric approach comes into picture. So I see a lot of gaps and companies which have managed to identify this and make a or make an iterative development in their products have been really successful. Yeah, that's a great example. So, so you ultimately propose a shift from a product-centric approach to a user-centric approach to development. Now, this all yeah. makes sense, but it's probably no small effort. So what sorts of challenges can businesses expect to encounter as they make this kind of shift? You're right about it. It's, it's, it's easily said uh, than done. Uh, of course, the first thing to find out is like, what does your customer actually need or want? That's a billion dollar question which companies are uh, trying to solve. Uh, but it is all also not always what the customer wants. As Henry Ford uh, said it, if I asked my customer back in those days what they want, they would have probably replied like, okay, I need a faster horse. Uh, they don't see the need for a car there. So it is not always about what the customer wants, but it is about balancing what you think there is a market uh, for a product and what the actual customer wants. So balancing this and getting this outside in perspective into your design process, into your development process is the key. So there's a happy medium there, right? I mean, this yeah. is also very different from uh, from the days of old. I mean, you can go and make that monetary yeah. investment to gather that input from your customers, right? So, uh, yeah. you know, is it a matter of some of these companies just not uh, spending that money the right way or not valuing the customers' ex uh, opinions enough? Uh, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, it's 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 like uh, it's a process. So we have to try it out uh, first. Uh, it's not always uh, easy. Uh, so there is always some kind of resistance uh, to change. Uh, so my perspective is like, just try it out. Uh, invite your customers probably for your product backlog meeting or when you have developed a nice prototype, just show it to them to see like, how what do they think about it? Get that feedback into your process and then iteratively develop it. I think that's a good way to approach uh, the to bring in this user perspective into your process. 
And if you still have some opposition when you're trying to make this shift, you know, you, there will always be naysayers or people that uh, don't want to change their ways of working or thinking about a product. Um, how do you proactively deal with that opposition? Uh, you know, because it's going to pop up with any kind of change that you make, right? Yeah, of course, all these processes that I talk about requires a, a real mind uh, mindset change itself. And that is not easy to happen easy to make it within an organization. So it's it's all about uh, giving them a taste. Uh, for example, when I was working for a, a bank, uh, we invited a few of our customers uh, to our office. Uh, we just put them in a, a room and asked them to use our application with the, with some minimum instructions. Uh, and like we were like uh, waiting out, it's like an inter interrogation room. So we could watch what they are doing. They cannot see what uh, we are up to. Uh, so with the way that they were navigating the application as developers and testers and an agile team, that gave us a lot of insights, that gave us a lot of uh, feeling about, ah, that's a different perspective. I never thought about it. Uh, it's I never thought about a few things, even in my own application, which I have been building for the last five years or so. So those insights, if they can get a taste of it, probably like that resistance uh, from people who are willing, who are not willing to change, will go down a bit because they have seen it in action, they have seen it in work, working, they get a perspective out of it. Right, and, and to help emphasize the point, uh, from your perspective, what are some brands that succeed with an aggressively user-centric approach? Mm -hmm. Anybody come to mind? I think I have a lot of brands. So if you look at the modern tech companies, they are all about digital experience. Let's take the example of Netflix. Uber, Airbnb, thebooking.com. All these companies have some kind of like X factor, which makes them fly. And that X factor is the CX factor in my customer experience factor. So if you look at Uber, Uber is nothing about, uh, Uber won't own any cars by themselves. They are nothing about travel industry itself. It's a tech company which revolutionized uh, the, how travel needs to happen. Uh, I can give an example. As I said in the beginning, I travel a lot. Uh, so before the Uber days, whenever I go book a taxi to airport, uh, the tester in me kicks in. So I used to doubt everything. Did I book it correctly? Uh, did they register my name properly? Uh, what if the driver car breaks down? All those things creates anxiety. For me, I don't care if Uber is expensive or not. Uh, those anxiety has been taken away with the use of Uber. For me, that's a good experience of a service. So all the tech companies that we see today are focusing on customer experience, and that has been their key success. But I bet the tester in you still checks the app five times to make it. sure that you put the right address in there, right? Yeah, of course. Of I can course. relate to that 100%, so I, I'm with you. Um, yeah, that's why Uber has an uh, app which gives you some real-time insights. They know exactly, they acknowledge that they have received your uh, request. They tell you exactly where the driver is. All these things reduces those kind of anxiety, I would say. Absolutely. Now, I'd imagine narrowing down the customer journey isn't easy for everybody, right? So what are some ways to verify and refine how you're developing for and testing against a customer journey? Yeah, there are three different ways. The most common one is like to first build out some kind of personas to identify 
who are your end customers, what kind of customers you have uh, segmented based on the age group or based on uh, some kind of uh, uh, segmentation uh, and then work on those journeys, like how would those customers use my app uh, and build your application for those personas and also test your application for those personas. That will give you a good insight about what your customer is doing and also to ensure that that journey is seamlessly well. And there is also the second way where it's like a trial and error way, which we call the A-B testing in the quality world, uh, where we send out a feature, uh, see if it is working. For example, in the US elections, back days when uh, Pre President Obama was there, they used this A-B testing to find out which of the website was more, which of the website was attracting more hits from the common public. So they had a website with a nice US flag on it. They also had a website with a family picture of uh, Obama on it. Of course, the one with the family picture attracted a lot of people. So that was a way for the people to find out, okay, this picture works quite well. We can do the same with products and features. We can build something, show it to a group, larger group of people to see which one works and then go uh, go about that path. And then there is also the third way, which is more a technical way, use AI machine learning to also synthetically simulate how a user journey would look like. So for example, in flight uh, situations, nobody can uh, actually test an emergency situation. It's all done through simulation. So those journeys and stuff could also be simulated and uh, developed uh, based on that and also tested for quality based on simulation. Yeah, whether you use AI or whether you use A-B testing, these uh, customer journeys are dynamic, right? Everything from technical changes to geopolitical to economic factors, these can all change how a customer interacts with your brand and your product. So how do you provide a reliable, high-quality experience if and when that journey evolves? That's a really good question because a lot of people in this customer experience digital world think like, okay, I made a customer journey and then I'm done with it. But your customer journey also should go through your change management process. If it is not a good journey map, un unless you keep changing it frequently as and when your customer personas or profile changes. So awareness, like, okay, you have, this is not a living journey document is the first uh, step. And then also updating it based on the feedback. Uh, every time that you get a feedback from your customer, you also keep updating your customer journey map. So over a period of time, it will evolve. Um, and yeah, uh, that will help us to sustain the changes that are happening in, in the customer profile itself. Now let's go back to using AI. Uh, how can organizations use AI to help assist with predicting customer behavior? And are there some common mistakes that some organizations make there? Yeah, I think AI and machine learning, when used at the right level, can uh, bring in a lot of good experience. For example, when you're shopping at Amazon, it will show you some kind of related products. Uh, that helps me a lot because I can compare the prices and I can also see what is there in the market in that product range or in that uh, category. 
which helps me to make that buying decision. Uh, but that is kind of a personalization. Next time when I come in search for a similar product, it also recommends me, okay, these are the products that you looked before, probably these are the ones you wanted. All these, for all these to work, for the analytics, you need data. And that data, I know it's collected from me. I'm okay with it until a level. But there are also companies where, okay, if I'm discussing with my girlfriend or with uh, my wife about buying something, so the next, and even without any Googling or without getting into any of uh, the internet stuff, the next day morning, if I open a website, and if I get recommendations to buy that product, that gets really creepy. So AI and machine learning are useful if you keep the personalization to a particular level in such a way that experience is still really sweet. Once and you that can cross... change over time too, right? I, we, yeah. we might become more open and embracing of these kind of predictive behaviors over time too as people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, yeah, if you look at the market, like hyper-personalization is like what everybody is looking at. Uh, Nike, Nike, everybody, every company, digital company, they want to give that tailored experience. But hyper-personalization beyond a point can also be quite creepy and piss off customers. A lot of people don't want to give, a, give away their data. Yeah, there's definitely a, a fine line to walk there, to be sure. Uh, now, Adonis, moving forward, the way users interact with digital products is going to evolve even more, whether that means the metaverse or just some other version of, a, of an integrated digital experience. The way consumers interact with their digital worlds will probably look very different in the near future. So how does this evolution dial up the table stakes for businesses and what should they be strategizing for uh, over time? I think uh, change is inevitable in the digital world, even like very technical people who call themselves very tech savvy, they could also find themselves in 20 years like completely out of the digital world. It's changing so fast, especially in the metaverse world. Uh, but I think if you look at the bigger companies or the digital companies, they are already started to think about it. Uh, if you look at Nike or if you look at uh, Gucci, for example, all fashion brands, retailers, they already have a store in the metaverse where people can buy stuff. So businesses that adapt to these uh, changes, they will survive. Uh, and others, of course, the Kodak example often comes into uh, discussions in these kind of scenarios. Uh, you have to move digital. You have to move forward and you have to adapt new technology as you go on. All right, final sprint here, Adonis. I have a few more questions for you before I let you go. In one sentence, what does digital quality mean to you? For me, digital quality is all about experience and perspective. Simple. I love it. <laughs> what will digital experiences look like five years from now? That's hard to predict. Probably we need an AI engine to do that. Uh, but it will move on from a nice to have position that we have now into a necessity for businesses to survive. What is your favorite app to use in your downtime? I have a lot of uh, favorite uh, apps, but I play a lot of mobile uh, games. Uh, I play War and Order. Uh, that probably takes uh, a lot of my time every day, but still it's like... Uh, Stress buster for me. 
Absolutely. What's something that you are hopeful for? It's about, uh, in the digital world, it's about uh, inclusivity and accessibility. As I said, a lot of people would be left out, even the technical people in the future. Uh, how do we bring all these people in the metaverse world, for example, that's a key for the future. That was Adonis Celestine. If you happen to bump into him on vacation, say hi to him for me. Oh, actually, you know what? Better yet, just leave him alone. Let him enjoy nature, okay? Thank you for listening. Shout out to our producers, Joe Stella and Sam Susala, and graphic designer Carly Searles. Feel free to reach out at podcasts at applause.com, and we will catch you next time.